All right, this is the fourth and final Sunday when we bring everything together, all is explained and, and revealed and everyone leaves uh, satisfied. Um, um, and I certainly appreciate it and it's been fun and this is, uh, I look upon us who attend and participate in this class as the, as the wheat and those outside the chaff. Um, but let's, uh, let's, let's open with a prayer. Restore us, O God of hosts, show the light of your countenance, and we shall be saved. In these moments together, Lord, let us look not only to these texts, but to the great text, your, uh, uh, your word, by which we are saved. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Alright, uh, this is the, the, the final uh, installment of this class, and just a quick recap, because I know uh, people have been in and out a little bit. This is a class about crime stories. And the reason why we're having a class about crime stories is because crime fiction illuminates and counterpoints the gospel. Crime fiction casts the light on the gospel and tells us a lot about it, particularly in its analysis of the human condition, which is the same analysis that the gospel provides us. Now, its conclusions sometimes, maybe off the rail, but that doesn't invalidate the way the way the stories look at us. The landscape in which crime fiction works is that of the fallen world, a post-lapsarian, post-Edenic kind of world, the world we all live in, a world that's, that is, that is um, characterized by sin. Sin is what makes crime stories go as far as their structure. And so what we've done is try to focus on three kinds of stories. There's lots and lots of mysteries in crime fiction, subgenres and so forth, but we focused on three kinds. First, what's called noir fiction, and for the record, uh, Robert Ball, the wife of an elementary school teacher, did not know what the word noir meant. Uh, noir, obviously, is a French word, and it means black. Um, noir fiction Detective fiction, which is probably most, if, if anybody in this room or listening to this reads this kind of story, that's mostly what they'll read. Those are private investigator stories or British police procedurals, that sort of thing. And then finally, we're talking about what I call vicarage fiction, which is vicarage fiction is uh, a story where the protagonist, the solver of the formal problem, uh, is a cleric, a priest, a monk. A nun. And we talked a little bit in earlier classes about what happens in these stories. And we'll remember that in noir fiction we have characters who have no possibility of redemption or resolution. And the, the enjoyment of the story really is just watching them sort of on their in, you know, inexorable path to hell. And that's, that's where the drama comes from. In detective fiction, we have stories where we have that sinful landscape, but we have an agency. We have an agent. We have an ability to do something about it. That's the character of the private investigator or the uh, deputy chief inspector or whoever the, the, the main focus is. Vicarage fiction is different than both of those. One way it's different is that I don't like it particularly. But I think, it's, I think it's important to talk about. But I don't particularly care for it because in, uh, in, 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 in poor hands, it gets very sappy and sentimental and kind of silly. Um, but in, in good hands, 
It's really quite remarkable. And what makes Vicarage fiction different is, I think, three things. One, I already mentioned, the main focus is on a person who's a cleric, a priest, a nun, so forth. Uh, secondly, the resolution of the story is not necessarily punishment. Remember, in, in noir fiction, people are punished just by the operation of the cosmos. That's just, they, 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 they cheat, they betray, they kill, and so forth, and they are sort of consumed by the sin itself. In detective fiction, uh, there is a resolution uh, which requires some sort of punishment and closure being visited on the wrongdoer, usually a murderer. But in vicarage fiction, and we'll talk about some details in a second, oddly enough, what we see is not that, but rather the uh, um, uh, a forgiving of the actor who has committed the offense. And then finally, the, I think what comes forward in this sort of story is a heightened awareness of original sin. Okay, so three things, you know, sort of the, the priest protagonist, we got forgiveness, not punishment, and then we got a heightened uh, sense of original sin. All right. The, the high priest, so to speak, of vicarage fiction is a guy named G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton, as most of you probably know, was a prolific English writer, sort of flourishing around the Edwardian era, the, the, the beginning of the 20th century. He wrote a bunch of stuff, but um, he's most popularly still known uh, now for uh, his Father Brown mysteries. He had a, he had a character named Father Brown. Uh, who, in addition to his uh, pastoral and clerical duties, Father Brown goes around England solving various mysteries. Um, and uh, um, uh, uh, Chesterton is also a serious theological thinker. Uh, he was raised uh, a non-Catholic, but he converted to Catholicism. Ah, Coach Ball, I just invoked you a moment ago. Um, uh, uh, he, he, Chesterton converted to Catholicism in 19... 22. Uh, and the Roman Catholicism really infects, and I don't say that badly, I mean, it, it really infects the, the stories because Chesterton said, look, there's two kinds of detective stories. There are, there are or mystery stories or crime stories. He says, there's stories where we're looking at the state, that is, some kind of official person, a, detect, a, a, a police detective or at least somebody who is operating sort of parallel with them, like a private investigator type. And Chester said, look, you got those stories, and what's there is a machinery of, of, of punishment. And he said, but parallel to that, you've got the church, which is not a machinery of punishment, but a machinery of pardon. Perhaps as a Protestant, we might want to substitute the phrase, the gospel for the church, Right, Chesterton was talking about literally the church on earth. Okay, but the point will remain uh, the same: that what the gospel provides is not a machinery of punishment, but a machinery of pardon. And that's why these victory stories often end up like this. Okay, and I and I finally figured out when I was when I was getting ready for for this class, a lot of times why I don't like these stories because 
I, I'm, I think I must, I must be, sinful as I am, too bloodthirsty. In other words, I don't appreciate sufficiently the, the, the pardoning aspect of these kind of stories, which is, which is my fault, uh, not theirs. As a digression, a very tiny digression, um, um, to the extent that we see real theology, real faith in crime fiction, it's almost always written by Roman Catholics. There's almost no, well, it, well, there's almost no Protestant fiction in general, and we can come back to why that might, why that might be. But, but uh, you know, Graham Greene, you know, it's 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 really remarkable uh, how that how that happens. Is James, um, do you know? No, she's well, she's an Anglican. I think she's an Anglican. But, uh, but it is, and, and, and there may be, now we can come back to that because in, in general, because we started off talking about in this, in this class, talking a little bit about that we don't really see faith and theology sort of overtly being work, worked out in, in much fiction in general, but, but certainly here, and we can talk a little bit about why that is and isn't. But Chesterton and his creation, Father Brown, these things are still in print, they're great stories. I think the first collection was published in something like 1910, 1911, but I mean, they're still around. Um, you know, Chesterton and Father Brown are, as Orthodox Roman Catholics, they are good you know, followers of St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> that is to say, they believe that reason is on an equal footing with revelation. Right? And that, that is, that's helpful for a a priest detective because you're trying to figure out you're trying to deduce if it's a formal mystery and I keep using that term formal by formal mystery I mean that there's a a, a specific formal problem you know who who killed you know Joe that's a that's a formal problem as opposed to crime stories where just events happen and you're not really worried about it and in fact I think we mentioned the other day um, you know, uh, a, a great crime story, the Maltese Falcon. People have seen the movie. The the uh, the formal problem is uh, uh, who who killed his partner, and that never actually gets resolved in the story. I mean, it's a great it's a great book and a great movie, but that, that never actually gets gets solved. But when we talk about a formal problem, we're talking about who usually who killed who killed Joe, and so it helps to be. A Thomist. It helps to be a follow, uh, an adherent of Thomas Aquinas because it requires, you know, sort of reasoned deduction. But that's common to all formal mysteries. That doesn't really help us particularly. And I think the 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 the, the key thing here is this notion about the disposition. Okay, the deduction is the same in in the in the secular versus vicarage fiction. The Procedure is the same. That doesn't really matter. What distinguishes it is the ultimate disposition. What is going to happen to the guy who killed Joe once he's identified, once he's apprehended? Is he going to be apprehended at all, or do we simply have the knowledge of the identity? That actually happens in a, in a, uh, in, in a couple of... Uh, well, it actually happens in one I know of... Uh, 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 Chesterton stories, and it happens in another one. I don't know if anybody's ever read sort of the contemporary version of these Father Dowling stories. Uh, uh, I mean, the Father Brown stories are uh, a guy named Father Dowling who has a uh, parish, Catholic parish, 
outside of Chicago and Illinois. It's written by a guy named Ralph McInerney, who's a professor of English at, uh, at, at Notre Dame. But in a couple of those stories, the protagonist, whether it's Brown in that series or Dowling in, 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 the, in the more contemporary series, they actually figure out, so to speak, who done it. Okay? But for various reasons, the protagonist decides not to involve the machinery of the state in the disposition. The, 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 the murderer is confronted, but what Father Brown or Father Dowling really seem to be more interested in is not the state, and in a way, a little shockingly, not even particularly the victim, but rather the murderer himself. All other stories we've talked about, the interest has really been on somebody else, and ultimately on the on the reader, because we're all selfish. These are these are these these this is this is very selfish reading, uh, and it's very good reading, but it's very selfish reading. Um, and 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 we we've we've I've cited a couple of times to W. H. Auden, who of course is a a, a British poet, and it was a great uh, enthusiast of this kind of fiction, and he he uh, he wrote. You know the seminal essay on this stuff called *The Guilty Vicarage*, about detective fiction, and I think I've got a quote in there uh, when he 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 goes on at some length about Father Brown and makes this point that really what he's doing is he is acting and working for the sake of the murderer who can save his soul if he will confess and repent, and that he doesn't really work like the uh, detective chief inspector. He doesn't really work like a private investigator, but rather he does something that is, 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 is theologically radical. That is, he subjectively imagines himself to be the murderer, which is a very cool concept because that kind of reimagining of oneself as the, the, an ultimate and visible center is a powerful gospel point. That is usually what we deny. Remember how we talked about when we were talking about noir fiction? Nobody in the room is going to admit that they're Frank or Cora. Okay. But in fact, we are. And what is a, a I think, a, a theologically and, and in terms of the gospel, what's very powerful here is that although it seems a little silly, the settings of these things, like Father Dowling, I can't imagine that there's that many murders in this little town in Illinois. I mean, it just, it just seems you know, impossible. But, so all this seems a, a, a little bit silly, but what he is doing is far more gory, is far more bloody, is, is far more um, um, destructive, self-destructive, than any uh, you know, Sam Spade, tough guy, private eye kind of situation because Father Brown or Father Dowling or, or any, you know, cleric who's the protagonist in these stories is actually reimagining and reconstructing himself as the murderer. Okay? And that what that entails, of course, is obliteration of the self that we're all so uh, 
fascinated with. At least I'm fascinated with myself, right? And I imagine that most of you, in your more candid moments, will admit that you you are you're very fascinated with your own self, right? So what we're talking about here is an obliteration of 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 self. Um, so you know, Father Brown, Father Father Dowling, um, and and this has given me a new appreciation of these of these of these stories. Now, when you, when you read them, remember what we're talking about. We're not just talking about a story that happens to get, be set in, a, in an ecclesiastical setting. There's lots of murder mysteries about you know, convents and nunneries and cathedrals and stuff. I think it's because they're, all those are enclosed spaces, and that's a great setting for a classical mystery because you only got a few people and you only got a few things they can do. You know. But no, what we're talking about here is where the actual problem solver himself or herself is 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 clerical um and so so really what these the these kind of stories are about is instead of remember we talked about the the the, the machinery of punishment versus the machinery of pardon it's not about punishment but it's about restoration okay not about punishment it's about restoration about restoring um, and 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 Auden, I uh, have another quote there from him about about r- restoring us to Eden. That's what. That's why we'd like these stories in some ways. Remember at the beginning of the, of the course, those of you who have soldiered on to the whole thing, we talked about the secular explanation for why we like these kind of stories. The secular explanation of why we like these stories is because. We find it agreeable. We find it aesthetically pleasing. We find it enjoyable when we have order. Then we have chaos, usually introduced by what? A murder. And then we have the restoration of order. And that we find the restoration of order enjoyable, pleasing, fun. And that's probably true. I mean, this is a storytelling. We probably do like that. But what we're really seeing and what we're really feeling when we're informed by the gospel, is first a sinful landscape. That's all chaos is, is the introduction of sin and its wages death. Okay, And then something being done about that. And of course, the gospel point is that something has been done about that already. So what we're going, so what, we're, what we are uh, appreciative of now is that we are, or can be, restored to that right relationship with God which we had before the fall. Okay? So that's when we, so when we're reading these things, let's, you know, let's let's don't overread it, but let's keep in mind what this is really about. It's about restoration. And that's what that's what Auden is talking about here and when he says fantasy, a that's not a misspelling. That's I think that's how in England, one used to spell, maybe still does spell fantasy. And he's not talking about fantasy in the sense of made up. He's talking about the sense of a projection or, or a, a, a desired thing out there. Um, is that, you know, he, he that, that, and he's, when he's talking about the reader, he's saying, well, what, what, what I'm doing is I want to be restored to the Garden of Eden, to a state of innocence where he, the reader, may know love as love and not as the law. That is exactly what vicarage fiction does. That that I mean, Father Brown or Father Dowling, when they're out, you know, toddling around doing their, doing their thing, they are in a in a mode of 
of knowing love as love and not as law. That's why they can obliterate themselves and identify with the bad guy, identify with the murderer, no matter how heinous he or she is, because they understand that we are all heinous. They understand that we are all equally as sinful as the murderer. The problem is the murderer has disrupted society and has offended the community because he or she has acted out. He's actually done the thing that resides in, our, in, in, in all of our hearts. And there's an ethical difference, right? There's an ethical problem. But that's not, that's not a gospel. That's not a gospel kind of problem. Um, and then the, the, the lectionary for today, actually, because when I do these things, I always check, check the, the lectionary because it's amazing. Uh, oftentimes, God's, God's word is, is better than mine. Um, and the, lect- the lectionary actually has it, I think, right today. Uh, we have a part of Psalm 80. Uh, we have a short, famous passage from Micah. And then we have uh, uh, several verses from the 10th chapter of Hebrews. And in Psalm 80, in verses 1 through 7, um, we see a plea from Israel for restoration. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. And that's repeated throughout the psalm because the nation is saying that uh, God has basically shut them out and shut them and shut them off. So, and we can see this throughout the Old Testament, that there is this notion of loss and in particularly a lost kingdom. And obviously the biggest lost kingdom was our entire existence, the Edenic state, when we had a right relationship with God. That's why stories, I think, of restoration, right? And we see this all the time. Lord of the Rings, all all kinds of stories. The whole plot line is getting the right guy back in the right place. And that's one reason why restoration stories are so powerful. Because it's not just because they're good narratives, which a lot of them are, but it's because it reflects... Um, um, even if we haven't really thought about it that much, even to a non-believer, it, it reflects this notion, which can even come out of general revelation, if not just specific revelation like this, that we are strangers, exiles, that there's a, a kingdom that's been lost, and that there is a missing ruler, that there is a missing, uh, that there is a missing king. So we see that all through the Old, the Old Testament. And then we also see uh, in, in Micah uh, here, a, this, of course, this, this, this prophecy uh, about Bethlehem, which is why, of course, it gets read during, during Advent. Um, but what is it? It's a prophecy about one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old from ancient days. And there's nothing more ancient than Eden. There is nothing more ancient than the condition in which we were in, in that right relationship with God before, before the fall. 
Um, and then uh, in, 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 in Hebrews, the, 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 the writer, of the, the letter of the Hebrews, is at great pains to, as, as we know, to point out that the old dispensation of repeated sacrifice is now gone. And that we have a new dispensation. That there has been a restoration. It doesn't feel like that always to us, right? Because we're in the already but not yet. We're, we're, we're not at Good Friday and we're not at Easter morning. We're all living on Holy Saturday. Already, it's already happened and it's not yet happened. Okay? But the, 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 the writer of the letter of the Hebrews is clear that that old dispensation has in fact been done away with. That that yearning for the kingdom which uh, uh, God's people ha have had uh, throughout time is now on a different order. That there is a kingdom that, that in, verse, uh, in verse 9 he does away with the first I mean talking about sacrifices and offerings in order to establish the second. In, in other words, to establish God's will, God's kingdom, um, and uh, God's, God's rule here on earth. So this is a very bizarre kind of thing, really. I mean, this is a very odd kind of thing. And it's odd, I think, because it requires... A, 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 an understanding on, the beha on behalf of the protagonist, of the people actually working in the story, of original sin, okay, and then a way out of original sin. Uh, and I don't want to get too far afield into, into original sin, but of course, in Article, Article 9, it's right there in the, in the Book of Common Prayer. It's kind of in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, but it's, it's, it's there. And, um, it, it is still um, uh, Orthodox uh, Anglican teaching, and it's in many ways an offensive teaching, um, but it's also a foundational precept for, um, uh, for the atonement. That is, how, how, how things work actually work on the cross. Um, but why is original sin so important for this kind of story, this kind of vicarage fiction? I think it's so important because when we read James M. Cain, when we read Dashiell Hammett, when we read either true noir stories or we read really hard-boiled, you know, P.I. fiction um, that deals with those uh, extremely dark themes, um, there is clearly a recognition of original sin. I mean, if 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 uh, I mean, if 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 Red Harvest, which we really haven't talked about that much, even though it's nameless course, um, um, is not about original sin. I don't I don't know what is. Um, it's it's a it's a private detective story that uh, that has one of the greatest short lines about violence I have ever read, which is I hit him with the door repeatedly. Um, but that story is about original sin. The postman always rings twice, in double indemnity. These are about original sin. But the problem is, there's no way out. None of the characters in those stories 
can do anything but maybe maybe kind of halfway recognize it if they have sufficient self-knowledge. But that's all that's all there is. And then in 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 just good good old detective fiction, right? There's a recognition of original sin, but the detective, the the private investigator, whoever the protagonist is, is really fighting a kind of a rear guard action. In other words, he's trying to get trying to identify the murderer and maybe trying to uh, reconstitute the group or the society or the culture or the family or whatever that was injured, but it's always incomplete. It's always um, uh, that the restoration of the order at the end is never identical to the to the uh, uh, situation of order at the beginning. Now, in part, that's that's just a function of the story because, by definition, false things were going on at the beginning, otherwise it wouldn't be a problem, right? But for those kind of stories, it's, it's never completely satisfying because it's never really fixed, right? It's never really, it's never really done. Yes, the, the guy who killed Joe is identified and arrested and taken away, or, you know, Hercule Poirot, you know, reveals all in the drawing room or whatever, okay? But, but the only thing that happens is, to use Chesterton's phrase, is the machinery of punishment, right? You got, the, you got the dinner party and the drawing room and the guys led away and so forth, all that kind, all that kind of thing. But that's all that's happening. And then everybody just kind of disperses and the story, the story ends. Joe's still dead, right? He's still, he's still, he's still gone. He's still gone. And that, remember, we, that's why we talked about um, a time or two ago how murder, and that's why murder, by the way, is, is, is the crime in all these stories, because murder is different than every other crime. Because murder, remember, is the only crime that obliterates the victim. Almost any other crime can uh, the victim is still around so there can be some kind of there can be you know money paid or or or, or something i mean there's still a victim uh around with murder joe's gone Exi- existence has ceased to be and so that's why it becomes an that's why it's an offense against god because it's an offense against against the whole creation against the community so in noir fiction yeah people recognize original sin they don't call it that but it's pretty obvious on his face. In detective fiction, the engine of the story runs on original sin, but our hero can't do that much about it. He sure can't bring Joe back. And a lot of times, the operation of the machinery of punishment is not that is not that satisfying. And um, that's why a lot of times we see and enjoy stories where the the protagonist is not just not merely the sleuth, but is also judge, jury, and executioner, right? I mean, it's sort of Mike Hammer stories, those those kinds of things, or um, or that handout I gave out uh, two three weeks ago about um, um, about the ghosts of Belfast, with the one about the the uh, the the recovering IRA soldier who's really kind of hearing voices, and the voices make him go killed people he used to work for you know so so that's why we have sort of that strain because we're kind of we're trying to get around the problem that really the detective story ultimately um doesn't doesn't do anything about original sin it just kind of puts a band-aid on it 
And then we finally get to vicarage fiction that, that, that the, uh, not only do we have a, 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 a recognition of original sin, but, and not only do we see it's a reality, but the operative point is something's been done about it already. It's done. It's over. And that's why we get these bizarre stories where that it, at first read are really kind of unsatisfying, the way I found them unsatisfying, where the interest is not what happened to Joe or what happened to the other characters. It's the interest is really about the murderer. And the way the detecting person, you know, Sister Mary Louise or, or Father Dowling or whoever, gets to that point is not so much by following the clues. I mean, there's enough of those to make the story kind of interesting. But ultimately, by becoming one with, by identifying himself or herself with a, with a killer. And seeing if the gospel, if, the, the, if, if there is not redemption available for that person, which is the most urgent errand. And that kind of makes sense in this, because the Great Commission does what? It gives us the most urgent errand to proclaim the word. So, so in these kind of stories, uh, uh, you know, it, it, original sin becomes ultimately escapable in ways that it is simply not escapable in other kinds in other kinds of stories. Uh, so, I think that. Uh, I, I think that the sort of the takeaway, or one takeaway from this whole discussion we've been having, is um, it's it's not enough to say, oh, I just kind of get a kick out of these stories, and I enjoy, which is fine, but rather let's let's be sure we keep our eyes open for how the gospel is expressed. In these kinds of stories, because it's it, it provides not only a great uh, a great service to us, but I think it opens up uh, a whole new way of looking at a maligned uh, uh, genre of of literature, uh, uh, whether or not the people writing it ever ever intended it to be so. I left a few minutes in case there are any. Any any thoughts, criticisms? Jack, where would you classify something like uh, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood? Uh, The question was about uh, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which, just as a refresher, um, is a uh, story, a sort of novelistic uh, rendering of an actual uh, crime, the, 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 the slaying of a of a family by two uh, uh, sort of drifter misfits and their ultimate uh, pursuit and capture and and execution. Um, it, you know, if 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 it were not a novelistic treatment of an actual event, it would it would probably fall squarely within a, the, the the noir tradition, because there's really, I mean, there's you know, there's really not much. Hope for those two guys 
in that story, really. Uh, Capote kind of get into their brains more than he wanted to. Well, it's it's supposedly just get more involved. I think. Well, I think that's what that's what made it kind of a, a novelistic treatment because he's he he's the the authorial voice right is is actually in everybody's head pretty much, um, but there's no. It's been a long time since I read it, but I I, I don't recall. And somebody may know better than I, but I I don't recall any sort of mechanism in there that would that would inform that story in a way because it's, it's it's only it's kind of a detective story but not it's more like a like you would read in a newspaper kind of stuff it's, it's more like action yeah it's more like true crime stories than a than kind of because you, you know you know what's hap- what's going to happen you know this is there's no great mystery about how this really plays out so it is more like true crime um I don't know where you find it in the bookstore. Actually, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's, it's is it is that what it is, that what it is? Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean because it does it does reflect the events, but it also has this sort of novelistic rendering because because he's in people's heads and reconstituting conversations and and so forth. So I mean I think if you just picked it up and nobody told you anything about it and just read it, it, it would it would feel like you're reading a novel, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Victor. We could we could do a whole class on just Scandinavian crime fiction, right? Which which has gotten extremely popular once we got once they got some good translators going and so forth. And yeah, I mean Joe Joe Nesbo uh, is 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 another one, and also somebody who's in that kind of I mean the way people are killed in Joe Nesbo's novels are very creative, uh, and, and 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 I think we could have a whole this discussion which unfortunately we just don't have time for about the about the gospel and what's going on there in Scandinavian fiction which in general and I not there's some great people if you haven't read it do but I mean in general it has a very uh, uh, very dark cold not surprisingly um, uh, and ultimately uh, sort of uh, empty Mechanism by which the crime is committed, and then the 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 the, the, the crime um, and the the, the the identity of the murder discovered, and so forth. Um, and you know, some of that uh, is going to be a reflection of, of culture and the 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 not only the the non-theological, but also the you know, the, the state of the state of churches in Scandinavia and the st- belief and so forth. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of subgenres in here that uh, that we could spend a lot of time that we could spend a lot of time talking about the whole t- the 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 cover of the New York Times book review today is is an article called "Has Fiction Lost Its Faith?" and the whole article is about not exactly this question but a related one, which is. Um, 50 
60 years ago, you had people like Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, people who, whose fiction was fed by their faith in one sort or another. Um, and they were, very, they were very specific about this, very deliberate about this. Whereas now, these, these, these folks are, are kind of thin on the ground. I mean, you just, you, just don't, you just don't see them. So the whole article is about that question, sort of, sort of why and why that, why that happens. Um, that's why I, I suggest people, when, it, when, when people say, well, uh, you're, re you're, you're reading a story, that's not a Christian story. Well, that's, that's not true. It doesn't because the story reveals the gospel, and it doesn't really matter that the person who wrote it had no intention of doing that. The person who wrote it created the thing, and it's for us then to consume. And if the person who created the thing, in the course of creating a, a compelling story, lays out a landscape of sin and redemption, then that is susceptible to uh, being being a, a mirror for what the gospel tells us about ourselves. So, um, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating question to which I don't really have much of an answer as to why there are almost no Walker Percy's walking around anymore. No, no, or very few, very few. Um, and it's a related question to, uh, to the extent there are, they're almost all Roman Catholics. Almost all of them. Um, there's not, there's not much of a, Protestant fiction, right? I'm not sure what it would look like anyway. Um, so, so these kinds of questions, I think, are very important uh, as we read these kind of stories. Anything else? It's the resolution of murder in the Orient Express, where there's so many people that you know have the desire to do the do the guy in, and that that resolution is. Uh, not necessarily the, the, the punishment, but Poirot comes to some kind of uh, uh, understanding, or basically, perhaps in that situation was that the 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 deceased was such an odious person that the, uh, that, that that the offense against the state is in essence just overlooked. But I think that's mm -hmm. got some interesting uh, twists in it from the perspective of the. Uh, of the murder, or you know, that maybe we we all have that in us as well. Maybe that's the closest that mm -hmm. Christie comes to to that kind of of, of understanding, uh, you know, which mm -hmm. is sort of like the vicarage uh, resolutions, but maybe not quite. Right. No, I, th I think it's right. I mean, Ag Agatha Christie obviously was a very uh, Formal, formalist kind of mystery writer. I mean, you really, you know, literally the body in the parlor, and then, and then you figure out who done it, and that's the end of the story. Uh, but you're right; even she had some ambiguity. Most crime fiction now sort of does end in some ambiguity. Not certainly not all of it, but most of it ambiguous either from the resolution of the problem, or if not that, ambiguous from where does everybody sort of stand now and I think that's because that's the way you know sort of in a postmodern post-Christendom world that's that's the way the culture uh, teaches us the culture teaches us that that life is ambiguous 
The gospel doesn't, but the culture does. All right, I think we're probably about out of time, so go forth to love and serve the Lord.